You're listening to ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, data from a victim assistance unit reported 1,712 calls for violence against partners over an 11-month period. Research into partner violence is so new that comparable data into the psychological and sexual abuse by intimate partners are few. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Amy Ernst. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Good to be here. Dr. Ernst is a tenured professor of emergency medicine at the University of New Mexico, and she has just published a research study in the May 2007 issue of Academic Emergency Medicine on the incidence of IPV, intimate partner violence occurring with substance abuse. Today we're going to talk about factors associated with IPV and its prevention. Dr. Ernst, how did you get into this area of research? I'm an emergency physician, and I was working actually at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, which unfortunately no longer exists. I was just noticing some very violent episodes and in partners and actually in some males. They were being shot, stabbed, assaulted by what they said was their partner, and decided to do some screening. You know, women definitely had a lot of issues, were often beaten by partners, but I was seeing seeing males actually having some retaliatory effects too and wanted to just look at some screening in the emergency department to see if that was viable if and if incidents were as high as I thought they were. And indeed they were. Now at Charity, had anybody else been looking at this before you or you just saw this as a pathway and you, you took off on it? No one else had looked at in a research way, no. I mean, I think people noticed a lot of things there, but, you know, often research wasn't done there, but actually looking at it was, I think, new for me. <laughs> you know, drugs and alcohol are often associated with violence. That part isn't surprising. But what did you find when you looked at the victims of intimate partner violence in uh, Albuquerque, where I believe you also did a study? Yeah, the victim assistance unit initiated asking about drug use Within the last year, probably January of 2006, I believe, is when they started looking at drugs and specifically methamphetamine, which is on the rise in the Albuquerque area. We've been seeing a lot of it and a lot of the consequences of it. And we really haven't seen the direct association with intimate partner violence. There's a lot of articles looking at violence in relation to, to drugs and Lately, a, a few are coming up looking at methamphetamine in particular, as it is associated with a lot of violence. But specifically, intimate partner violence and methamphetamine has very little in the literature. But we did look at that in this victim assistance unit over the last year or so, and we're finding a lot, especially in the abusers. Now, let me just clarify for our audience, because this was new to me, we're all familiar with domestic violence, right, which can involve the anyone in the family. But, but when we say intimate partner violence, we mean specifically a couple, correct? Partners, yes. It can be same-sex partners, but partners. Methamphetamine or crystal meth, that's really had a new resurgence in America. Why is its effect particularly worse um, within this population or subgroup? Methamphetamine is very much of a stimulant drug. And it causes paranoia and a lot of effects that lead to to violence. It also has a very long effect, lasts several hours. I've seen in some articles about eight hours is, is the lasting effect. And also leads to perpetuation of its use. The, once the user starts using it, they like the effects 
and continue to use it, and it's, and it's a problem. One of the social workers at our local victim assistance unit mentioned this in particular and has found that the acts that she has heard about when meth is involved have been significantly worse, more sexual abuse in addition to other physical violent incidents, and that's why we decided to take a look at it in particular as a drug that's causing a lot of violence. So you're saying it's a stimulant, makes people who are maybe underlying paranoid, um, more paranoid, makes them angry, and that's why you're seeing more of it maybe in the ER? I think that's why we are. Can you give us any clinical pearls for spotting meth abuse? Because like cocaine did many years ago, it's crossed over, right? It's not just an, an inner city effect. Um, it's in really in every socioeconomic group. Can you give us any pearls for spotting these people? I think there's a little bit more of a paranoia that you can see. And when I see patients, I, I start suspecting meth when they're like hyperactive to sen- sensory stimulus. You touch their arm, they'll scream, ow, ow, you know, it's that, that kind of thing. A little more than anything should be causing pain, you know, and they'll complain about things that are causing pain that really, you know, you stick them for an IV and they're crawling off the stretcher. It's like uh, an incredible reaction. So uh, I'd say even more than cocaine, you know, when I look at patients and, you know, I can, I, I sort of guess what drug I think they're using sometimes. And for meth, it's just much more of a hypersensitivity to, to stimulus. And, and the paranoia. Any physical signs? Um, dry eyes, dry mouth? Yeah, they can have dryness. It's a little, sometimes they come in very disheveled and hyperactive, so it's a little hard to see that as a unique characteristic. But they will have, yeah, the, the wide-eyed, dry eye look and paranoid about, you know, anytime you're in the room, they'll you know, turn around. What are you doing? You know, kind of thing. Can you tell us anything about any research in the area of um, IPV? What are different ERs or different hospitals looking into? Is there research? There's a lot of research on, on type of screening, a lot about looking at using computers to screen. We've actually got, become involved with that, too. We actually offered computer and paper format and found that we got more patients to enroll in studies when we used both methods. Also, looking at family history, if they've, if someone has witnessed abuse when they were a child, how is that related? And in our study, we found that victims had not witnessed abuse as children more often than, than non-victims, but perpetrators actually had. That's a, there's an abstract that we just presented at Society for Academic Emergency Medicine about that. You know, we're finding maybe learning violence is a trait for perpetrators more often. A person who has previously seen violence in their home does not go on to become a victim. They actually learn not to get in that type of a relationship, maybe. But perpetrators often have learned that behavior from the, from the past and accept it in, in their, their lifetimes. Exactly why, we don't know, but you know, it's something we're looking into. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Amy Ernst, and we're discussing intimate partner violence. Tell me, Dr. Ernst, men and women who have experienced violence generally experience it over multiple acts over time. So what kind of a signal does this give to the primary care doctor who sees them more than once? High index of suspicion needs, needs to be continued, you know, to pick this up and to 
to actually deal with it. Sometimes in these situations, especially women who are victims, may not be ready to leave the situation. But I think open talking about it and options and developing what we call a safety plan is really important in these kind of kind of situations. If there is one act, there is likely to be others. And multiple acts are frequent. It's rare to find someone who really has something happen, you know, physical act of abuse and not have another incident. And it's like important to probably tell the patient that, that, you know, this is likely to continue and likely to get worse. As a matter of fact, it likely escalates. Getting together with the, with the patient and formulating a safety plan, you know, where to go, you know, what to bring, how to, how to escape if, if necessary with children and, and what to do for and with children is important to know. They may not be ready to leave at that point, and it's important not to be judgmental, but to help that person get to the situation where they're able to leave and be ready when they, when they can and when they are ready. Now, you mentioned the children. What happens to the children that witness this abuse? Do they need therapy? I mean, is, is there hope for them? Will they go on to grow up and abuse others? Or There is a likelihood the cycle of violence could continue. Albuquerque, New Mexico, has a very unique program where children in the home are immediately started in some treatment sessions that include, you know, mostly education and safety planning and that sort of thing for themselves. And, you know, we don't have really a lot of data knowing that entering in such a program leads to less abuse in the the future, including perpetration of abuse. But I think there definitely needs to be some better educational programs and, and treatment for someone who has witnessed abuse. It is a form of abuse itself. Can you tell us the questions you ask when you're screening for abuse? Sometimes I do even ask, are you a victim of abuse? In my research, I've done that to see if I get the answer that way as opposed to a screen. But I think a screen is the best way to ask, um, has, has your partner harmed you in the last month? Has your partner used a weapon? Have you had to come to the hospital? You know, have you felt like you were going to be hurt? Have you, were you afraid your partner was going to harm you, kill, wanted to kill you, that sort of thing. Can you tell us, Dr. Ernst, what form does prevention take in these cases once you have a high index of suspicion or somebody in the family may have been injured? You're getting some signals. What can you do to prevent something else happening? Probably number one is education, to make sure the person knows what abuse is, that it's not tolerable, and the options and formulating a safety plan and include members in the household that may be, be injured, like for children, a uh, safety plan for children, that they should, you know, find a neighbor that can help, a friend, somewhere to go if violence occurs, that sort of thing. So mostly I would say just education is, is important about those sorts of things. So giving them a phone number of a safe house they can call or an intervention group or having even a, something as simple as a handout in your practice, something that, and I'm thinking of office-based medicine, something you can do to give them to take with them to get them thinking. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. No local numbers. And hopefully the local number is an easy number to just remember. If worse comes to worse, 911 is always an option. Okay. Lastly, what is your, your wish list for what we as physicians should be doing in these circumstances? What would you like to see primary care doctors doing? Screening just about everyone they encounter and making it just part of your routine in your mind, what you're doing with your practice. Make it, make it part of the review of systems. I'd love medical schools to get involved with that too and 
make that part of what they routinely do. I don't think I learned much of anything in my medical school about intimate partner violence. That was a long time ago, but you know, I think nowadays it should be part of an educational curriculum. At UNM, we have a lecture for all the interns coming in about intimate partner violence, and we're involved in research, and several of the residents and interns get involved with that right away. So just knowing information about it and the resources that you have in your local area are very important. So screening, education, and prevention. Yes? Exactly right. Thank you. Excellent. We learned a lot from you today. I want to thank Dr. Amy Ernst for joining us. She has been our guest. We've been discussing intimate partner abuse. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this or any segment, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.